want to talk about it one more time. Uh, I've spent, you know, the past several weeks, I've, I've talked a little bit about it just because I was consumed with that topic, and so I've just been sharing with you from my paper. And so tonight I'm going to wrap that up and, and, uh, and talk to you about the image of God again tonight. Uh, so, so if you take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, uh, we're going to talk about the Imago Dei, and that's the, um, the Latin term for the image of God. That's sort of the theological term, the Imago Dei. And so this is our third message in this, and so I want to tie a bow on it, wrap it all up tonight uh, by talking about why it matters. We know we're created in the image of God, so... I want to talk to, about, talk to you about why that's significant for us. And we've talked some about this, and we'll review it, but, but there are some things that are implied by the fact that we're created in God's image. And, and it can really change the way we look at ourselves and look at life and look at others. So to review tonight, in Genesis 1, <clears throat> verse 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's, it's significant here that, in fact... Um, uh, Van Lance was just here a little bit earlier, and if you don't know Van, he's a Messianic Jewish rabbi, a friend of ours, and, and uh, well, I was talking to him about this paper, and, and he was talking about how that, that uh, the, the term image is, is, can, can actually be compared to the word decoration or fingerprint. And so when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, it was God putting that final decoration upon the earth and putting his fingerprint upon the earth. And it was only, only when God created humanity did he, say that, did he say that it's very good. And so you understand, you are God's fingerprint in the earth. Hallelujah. So uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this, the image of God and humanity, what it means. So let me just go through a few of these things that we've talked about. Uh, when it talks about being made in God's image, it's not talking about our physical bodies, our physical shape. Uh, we, it's talking more about the spiritual and soul qualities. It's talking about the fact that we have uh, higher reasoning and that we have a certain capacity, certain God-like capacity uh, to, to even rule over the earth. We, we're called to be His stewards. In fact, that was the commission that God gave Adam and Eve was to fill the earth and subdue it. And they were to rule the earth as His representatives on the earth to steward the planet for God. And now, no other animal can do this. You know, no other creation can do this. That God commissioned us in His image to rule on His behalf. So this is our responsibility that God has given us. And it is gender inclusive. It's not that man was made in the image of God and woman was made in the image of man. That's not what it says. It says that God created him and her, created them in His image. And so, so, ladies, you are created just as much in the image of God as your husband is, or as the men in this room are. And so, so it's not a matter of physical attributes. It's a matter of something deeper within our creation. 
That image is passed down from one generation to the next. Every single one of us have inherited the image of God. It's not, it's not uh, diminished. It's not done away with. It's only been perverted by sin. But every single one of us was born with that same image that you reflect God's nature and how you were created. <clears throat> and so what does this mean for us? It means that you and I have value to God. Say, I am valuable to God. Many people today struggle with a sense of worthlessness. <clears throat> Many people today struggle with a sense of they don't matter. Hear me very carefully. The fact that you were created in the image of God gives you value. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9, Adam and, or excuse me, Noah and his family are, are coming off of the ark. God has just wiped out creation except for what's in the ark. And they're coming back out, and God gives them the same mandate that he gave Adam and Eve. He said, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And what's interesting, though, is that God adds something for Noah and his family that he didn't include with Adam and Eve. And the reason why is because now they're having to repopulate the earth, but they're having to do it encumbered by sin. And so when God tells them to fill the earth, he adds this in verse 6 of Genesis 9. He said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so, so God gives this admonition for capital punishment on the basis of the fact that the life being taken is one that is created in God's image. Now, there are lots of scriptures throughout the Bible that say don't be cruel to animals. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about showing, uh, treating animals with respect and that kind of thing, and it's wrong to be cruel to animals. But only when the blood of a human being is shed does God call it murder. There is something unique about humanity that's so important that if someone takes the life of a human being, God's law says their life is to be taken as well. And so, understand this. This value that we have is not by anything we've accomplished. It's not by our birth order. It's not by the kind of family we're born into. The thing that gives us value at the very foundation of who we are is that we bear God's image. That makes you valuable. So, we talked about that. And then, being made in God's image demonstrates God's favor. It means that God inclines Himself to us. It also shows us God's expectations. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, it was not to, to tell God's people, do these things and you can be right with me. It wasn't, if you do these ten things, then maybe you can be saved. Maybe you can be one of my people if you'll do these things. And that's the way we often interpret the commandments, but that's not what it is at all. What, what it is, is God is saying, you are my people created in my image, and because you're my people, this is how I expect you to behave. Amen. 
And so the fact that we're made in His image determines that we have certain expectations upon us from God. That we are not free. You know, one of, the, one of the greatest lies, you know, we talk about how evil rock music is and how evil country music is and, you know, tear in my beer and all that kind of stuff or, or that rock music is satanic and all that. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that some of the most satanic music in the world is not rock music. It's not country music. It's Frank Sinatra. Think about it. I did it my way, right? I did it my way. That is a very satanic statement. In other words, nobody is going to tell me how to live my life. Now, God, you like how Keith's over here laughing. He likes how I set that up. But understand this, that there are expectations upon us because we belong. We were created by God. Created things have a function, right? We don't create something just for the sake of creating it. So what about art? Art is created for us to, have a ref- to reflect upon it, to think about it, or just to enjoy its aesthetic, but everything else, this podium was created not to just look cool, but to hold my Bible and my notes up while I'm preaching. It has a function. You and I, God created us in His image to, to accomplish a certain function. And so we have purpose. Finally, we talked last week about how Christ reveals God's perfect image. We are said to be made in the image of God. Christ is said to be the image of God. And so when we look at Christ, we are looking at the Father. He is the exact image of the Father. We read this in John 14, verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, do not, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and, in the, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so understand that Christ is, is exactly the Father. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at exactly what the Father is like. But the cool thing about this, like we said last week, the cool thing is that not only does Jesus perfectly demonstrate the Father to us, Jesus also, as as being born in the flesh, perfectly represents humanity to the Father. And so by that, Jesus being the image of God demonstrates what humanity can be demonstrates what humanity was created to be and demonstrates what humanity will be when Jesus returns and these corruptible bodies put on incorruption. Jesus shows us the Father and Jesus shows humanity to the Father and shows us what we were created to be. So from that point on, after Jesus comes, after Jesus came, 
from that point on, we are told to conform to the image of Christ. So that brings us up to where we are tonight. So before I go any further, does anybody have any questions about this? This has been something I've been working on for weeks with this paper. I've been eating and drinking and sleeping about all of this subject. I would love to, if you, if you have any questions about this, let me just take a second and bounce off of that while I drink my water. Nobody? What so far in talking about the image of God has stood out the most to you? Yeah. Yeah. We're not just an accident. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, Bill. Well, he wasn't <clears throat> gray-headed as much. That's the way they were portrayed. Charlton Heston portrayed it in the movie, but but it was <clears throat> it, his face was actually glowing uh, from from being in the presence of the glory of God, and, and and that's something that's really cool in the New Testament because it talks about how Moses had to put a veil over his face because of the glory of God reflecting on it, but that glory faded over time after being in God's presence and then being away from it. But now it talks about in Christ that the glory that he gives us never fades. So, um, so yeah, <clears throat> an interesting side note, I think I've shared this before. When in the earliest translations of the King James Version into English, this is not the, this is not the version, the 1611 version. That's not the first King James Version. There's been a few before that. The first one had a lot of errors in it. And one of the errors they made was that they misinterpreted the word for, about, for that glory in Moses' face. And the way they interpreted it in the English was that, um, that when Moses came off the mountain, he had horns. Yeah. They, there is actually drawings from that time period, about the time that translation took place, of Moses with horns because of that mistranslation. I don't know this, but I wonder if that somehow got transposed into that's why we sometimes draw Satan with horns because, you know, the Bible never says he has horns or a pitchfork or a pointed tail or any of that. The only thing it says about his description is that he appears as an angel of light. He was an angel, okay? He was beautiful. In fact, it was the beauty that caused him to fall. It's pride in it. And so, so it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I, mean, I love to point that out to King James only folks because they don't know what to do with that. So... Um, anyway, okay, so, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay, um, 
So, so yeah, when we, when we are conformed to Christ's image, there is a glory about us that, uh, that will never fade. And it's the difference between being in God's presence and, and being, you know, the difference between being before God and, and having God in us through the Holy Spirit. So, anything else? <coughs> Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. It's a good word. And that just it just shows the creativity of God that every that <clears throat> that we are only one small picture of who of how big He is, you know. Um, that every person as different as we are show, reflects some aspect of who God is, or we can anyway. <clears throat> I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, anything else? All right, well, let me show you something else from, a, from another passage that, that, to draw some comparisons here. The image of God, well, let me back up. The image, in the general sense, the image remains closely connected to its source. The image remains closely connected to its source. And I want to show this to you in sort of an unexpected place in Daniel chapter 3. Now, we know this story well, where King Nebuchadnezzar creates this golden image, commands everybody to bow down to it, right? So in, in verse 1 of Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, uh, breadth, breadth, can't say it, 6 cubits. So 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall. It's huge. Overlaid with gold. He set it up on the plain of Dura <coughs> in the province of Babylon. Now, the word here for, for image is the same Hebrew word used for the image of God in humanity. <coughs> the same word that's used for image when it's talking about this gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had made. It's the same word that's used to say when God said, let us make man in, in our image. So, in some sense, there is a relationship between the statue and Nebuchadnezzar that we can compare to the relationship between us and God. The word image here <coughs> means a representation of. So, to give you a little bit of background, kings in the ancient Near East often would build idols to affirm their presence and remind everyone who was in charge even when they weren't physically present. 
And this is why Nebuchadnezzar built this on the plain of Dura. He wasn't there all the time. And so he had this image built so that everybody that went to that area would know that King Nebuchadnezzar reigns in this area. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't there. He would be somewhere else most of the time. But they, they were reminded of his presence because of this image that was there, right? You with me so far? Sometimes they would make this image an image of their gods. Sometimes it would be an image of the, of the king himself. Either, and, either, and if it was an image of the gods, sometimes they would make this as a reference point for their worship so that they would bow before the, the statue and in so doing would be bowing before the god, right? And so sometimes even the king would be seen as an image of the gods. In other words, instead of having a statue of the gods, the king himself would be considered the image that represents the god. So this word has all these different applications. So in this particular case, King Nebuchadnezzar has built this statue. I've always assumed it was a statue of him. We don't really know for sure. It may have been a statue of the gods that he claimed to serve. But at any rate, whichever it was, um, the, the, the idol, the image, was closely associated with King Nebuchadnezzar and his reign. Now, here's the point. In each of these situations, the idol is closely identified with that which it represents. And this is why King Nebuchadnezzar threatened the lives of those who refused to bow down to the image he created. Whether the image reflected his own image, or whether it represented the gods that he served, to refuse to bow before that idol was the same as refusing to bow before him. So to refuse to bow before the idol was an act of rebellion against the king. Okay? I mean, you think about it. What's the big deal about bowing before a statue? But it was the same as bowing before the king. So this is why he got so furious when these three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. Here's what happened in Daniel 3 verse 4. It says, The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, (coughs) you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we know the story. The Hebrews refused to bow. Nebuchadnezzar is outraged. He has them brought in. He even gives them a second chance. And he he warns them that that they will burn if if they do not bow. He gives them an opportunity. He says, but now if you will bow when we play the music, he was going to have it done all over again just for them. He says, and if you will bow, then good. All we're good. But if you don't, you're going in the furnace. And I love the response of these Hebrews. They were so brave. They said, O king, live forever. He said, we have no need to answer you on this matter. We shall not bow. Our God will deliver us from your fiery furnace. But if not, then know this, we will not bow. We would rather burn than bow. I love that kind of faith. They were confident that God would deliver them. But they said, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't change anything. 
Many times we put our faith in a condition, don't we? Well, I'm trusting God to deliver me. And if he doesn't, well, then it's on, you know. No, they said, God will, but if he doesn't, it's all right. And so it so enraged the king, he had the furnace heated up seven times as hot, so hot that when the men threw them in, the soldiers that threw them in died from the heat. These furnaces were likely shaped um, like a big vase. It was round, rounded at the bottom with a long top. And more than likely, uh, they were taken to this platform and thrown in from the top. But there would have been a door, uh, like an opening in the side so they could watch the, the, the metal that was being melted. And, and so, so the king could sit on his throne or sit wherever he was sitting. He could sit alongside the furnace and see into it. And so the three Hebrews are thrown into the furnace and the king is watching. Now watch what happens in verse 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So this is, this is, this is so cool. This is amazing. I mean, just think about this. They threw, threw three men in, and yet when they look, there's four men walking around. He has them brought out, so three men come back out. They're, they're, the, the, the ropes that had them bound are burned away. There's nothing there, but their clothes are not burned. Their hair is not singed. The Bible says they don't even smell of smoke. I wonder what it was like just dancing around in the fire with all that going on. And then to have the fourth man show up. Who was the fourth man? Well, Jewish scholars say it was an angel. Some Christian scholars say that, but a lot of Christian scholars say that this was the angel of the Lord. In other words, this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. In other words, Jesus appearing in, in human form before he was actually born to Mary. And this, <clears throat> this occurs on several occasions in the Old Testament. So many Christian scholars believe that that's what it was. So, so this is Jesus. We're going to assume this is Jesus himself showing up to, to free, to protect, and to free these Hebrews. Now, watch this. Watch this. This is good. So, the image that Nebuchadnezzar made represented his rule or his gods. The three Hebrews, the three people that in this area that followed, followed the Lord, refused to bow. How did God answer that? He protected the Hebrews, defended them, and delivered them by sending his own image. <laughs> he sent Jesus, who is the image of God, to answer the false image of Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and so you see how closely associated the image remains to that which it represents. You see that there's this, there's this connection here that, that can't be separated. Now, if bowing to a statue of gold is that significant, 
What does that say about the significance of you and I being made in God's image? How others relate to the image is how they also relate to the creator of that image. By refusing to bow to the statue, they were refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. So how someone treats you and me or how we treat someone else created in the image of God, they're treating God the same way. Watch this. You know this verse. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, And the king will answer them. Who's the king? God the Father. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Who are the least of these? It's the ones that the rest of the world doesn't care about. It's the poor, the orphan, the prisoner, the sick, the hurting the ones that everybody else just sort of casts aside and moves on. God says, what you do for them, you do for me, and what you refuse to do for them, you refuse to do for me. Why? Because the image remains closely connected to the source. Now, with all of this in mind, what's the significance of all this for us? I'm going to give you three. There's a bunch more, but let me just give you three. Each person, because they are created in God's image, has inherent dignity and value. They're born with it. It's inherent. Each person has inherent dignity and value. Many passages of Scripture assert that the image of God in, us, in, in each of us gives us great value. And this suggests that individuals and people groups deserve respect and care from their fellow human beings. Because how we treat them is how we treat Christ. Every person has value. Therefore, each person has dignity. Therefore, each person is worthy of respect. This even uh, affects human rights. What are human rights? John Kilner defines human rights as what people ought to receive or be protected from by virtue of being people. Why do we have human rights? Because we're made in the image of God. Being made in God's image gives each of us a sacred quality. Not saying we're gods. Don't misunderstand me. Not saying we're somehow divine. But the fact that we are in God's image, there's a sacredness to that image that gives each of us value, that makes each of us a treasure to God. So let me, let me read you something else by Kilner. He says... Being in God's image, people draw their significance from God's connection with them and from the divine reflection God intends them to be. Not merely from any attributes they may have per se, however excellent those are. In other words, people have rights, but they do not have a right to those rights. Those rights flow from the God-given dignity and sacredness rooted in creation and God's image. Does this make sense to you? That we have rights, but it's not because we've earned them. It's because God gave them to us. 
That because we're made in His image, God bestowed those rights upon us. And he said that, 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 that significance that we have is not because of how good we are at anything. Keith is an amazing musician. Angela is an amazing musician. Now, that in, in the world's eyes, that gives them great value. I mean, there's nothing that our culture treasures more than a good musician, right? But does that make them any more valuable than the homeless person on the street? No. But many times they're treated that way, right? You say, but look what they can do. Well, that is significant. But that's not what gives them value. The homeless person has the same image of God in them that Keith and Angela have in them that they reflect through their, mu- their musical abilities. So this is why Christians must deal with injustice. In our circles, people tend, our people try to, try to shy away from social justice issues. We say, well, that's what liberals do. In fact, at one of our general councils, when they were talking about this issue, someone said, well, now, that's how churches begin that, low, that, that slow slide to liberalism is getting involved in social issues. You know what? Jesus would disagree. We can't not be involved with social issues. I mean, Jesus said it himself, what you do for the least of these is what you do to me. This is why we're building the community closet. It's because those people that are lacking food and clothing and those foster kids that are having to go into emergency care, they have value and they have dignity. They're made in God's image. And what we do for them, we do for the Lord. So it's actually an act of worship to serve them. This is why we have to deal with things like poverty. This is why we have to deal with things like abuse. In fact, this paper that I wrote on the image of God is going to be the the, the, uh, scriptural foundation for my final project on my doctorate. And it's going to be the foundation of, of why... The church must minister to victims of sexual abuse, specifically people that are abused in the church. What, what, and we would all, I think, agree that, that people that have been through this need to be ministered to. And we would agree with that. But why? Well, just because we should. I know. We all know that. It's, it's intrinsic in, in our thinking. It's like an instinct. But why? It's because... That abuse offends and distorts and damages the image of God in those precious people. That's why we minister to them, is to bring healing to them. And so the church can't not do something about those kinds of issues. This is why... We must minister to children, to people with special needs. Even the weakest and most marginalized people have the dignity that the Imago Day gives them. I mean, we have two children in our church with Down syndrome, Gabe and Mac. What, are the, what is the defining quality of both of those boys? Love. Unconditional love. They are two of the most loving human beings you will ever meet. And in that way, don't they reflect the image of God better than many of us? Amen. And so there is, 
There is value in, in, in people of whatever background, whatever condition. And so the, the church must recognize this, that each person has inherent, inherent dignity and value. The second, the second thing this means for us is that God desires a personal relationship with us. The fact that He created us in His image means that He desires that personal relationship. We have this unique and honored position by virtue of our creation. By the nature of our creation, God invites us to know Him. Think about it this way. The created cannot force the Creator to disclose Himself to the created. Right? Put it more simply. God, we cannot force God to show us Himself. So everything that we know of God is by His choice of self-disclosure and self-revelation. And the fact that He reveals something of who He is and how He created us, the way we are created indicates God wants us to know Him. The way He created the universe invites us to know Him. Romans 1 tells us that we look at natural revelation. We look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and we know, we know instinctively that there's a Creator. That instinct was put in us by God as an invitation to pursue Him, to know Him. So God wants a, a personal relationship. 1 Corinthians 2.11 for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Bottom line, everything we know about God, God shows us through His Spirit. God cannot be studied in the way that we can study geology. And you're talking to a doctoral student saying this, okay? Yes, we study God, but we're not going to mine new truths that's going to surprise God. How'd they find that out? God wants us to study Him to bring us to those points, those aha moments where He can reveal something to us Himself. Everything we know of God is self-revelation. It's what He shows us about Himself. He wants a personal relationship. And then finally, last thought. <clears throat> Following Christ makes us more fully human. Have you ever thought about it like that? You ever heard of somebody being too heavenly minded? They're no earthly good. Not really any such thing. It, it, what we mean by that is they don't have common sense and they're not really engaged with reality around them. But to truly know God is not to be weird and to be off on you know some other planet kind of thinking. To really know God is to be fully human. We all have the image of God in common, and we all share the sin that distorts that image. And that sin keeps us from fulfilling the original design God had for us. And so Jesus came to earth to deal with the sin 
so that we could live out the design that God originally had for us, right? And so to, to have the sin dealt with and to truly know God is to be more fully human, to be what God created us to be. So understand this. You don't get, you don't get weird by getting closer to God. You get more you. You get more truly who God created you to be. Everybody else is weird. Right? So, what, how does this apply to evangelism? In leading others to Christ, we have to be careful that we don't mix our own culture in with the gospel. We don't need to make other cultures more like American Christianity. Or even don't even need to make it more Jewish. It's not a matter of picking up somebody else's culture or converting somebody else's culture to ours. Every culture can honor God through its own expressions. African Christians are going to behave differently than American Christians and so on. And that's how it should be. All of it reflects God's creativity. There is something in every culture that can glorify God. And so the issue is not to make them like us. The issue is to make them more like Christ so that they can be more fully human in how God created them to be. Does that make sense? It's, it's funny. You, you look at how missionaries have, have gone out over the years, and thankfully this is kind of moving away from this trend, but for years, British and American missionaries that went out into other parts of the world would try to colonize, in other, in other words, make them make them like British and American colonies there. And we would mix that with the Christianity. And that's idolatry. Our goal is not to make them like us. It's to make them more like Christ. So, all of this that we've talked about over these last three weeks, you're made in God's image. That gives you value. It gives you dignity. It gives you significance. Stop telling yourself you're worthless. You matter to God. You have nothing to prove. You simply allow the Lord to make you who He originally designed you to be. And in doing that, you will reflect His glory. And you will be a reflection of His image in your life and will glorify Him.